All right, well, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, and we're going to encounter this morning one of the most bizarre, one of the most fascinating, one of the most challenging texts in the New Testament, um, the beginning of chapter 5. And I want to remind you just kind of where we're at. If you've been here for a while, you've, you've been tracking with us, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, last week, we were looking at Jesus' authority over nature as he calms the sea. You remember that? So last week, the disciples get in the boat with Jesus. They go across. There's a great storm. Jesus calms the sea, demonstrating his power as a sovereign creator over his creation. And so it's uh, been a very encouraging text. It was a very encouraging time to study it last week with you. And we're reminded at the end of that section, verse 40, Jesus' question to the disciples and to us is, are these questions, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Those are some questions we ought to be asking ourselves right now. Because if we know who Jesus is, uh, we don't have to be afraid. If we have faith, we don't have to fear and live in anxiety. And so that is where the text ends. The sea has been calmed. And now they're coming to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And here, Jesus is going to demonstrate a new angle of his authority to us. He's going to show us something. Uh, it's like another side of the diamond that he's, he's going to reveal to us, another side of his glory that we're able to see here. And what we're going to see is that Jesus' power is not merely over the creation, but it is also, or, or I should say the physical creation, it is also over the demonic. Jesus' authority extends over the spirit realm over the demonic realm uh, i think that there's some errors when we get to thinking about demons right that some of us just disbelieve in them altogether and we act like moderns in that we are almost functional materialists even if we wouldn't admit that we're materialists we can think and live that way other people can obsess over the demonic and the unseen, and we can think about it all the time to the point where it's unhealthy and a little strange. Both of those would be wrong. I think we have to find the right biblical balance related to this subject. We are the kind of people who affirm our belief in the demonic, but we hardly know what to do with it. Wouldn't you say that's accurate? We, we, we agree that demons exist. We, we know if we're at all biblical, we know that this is part of what the Bible teaches about reality, and yet uh, we don't really have much to do with our understanding of the demonic except they make for great stories around the campfire, right? But if we're going to have a biblical worldview, we're going to actually need to talk about this unseen spirit realm, aren't we? Uh, we have to embrace the reality that God's word tells us what reality is actually like we have to remember that god's word presents to us a reality that is not merely physical it's not merely material uh, we have to remember that there is a spirit realm that we cannot see god is a spirit he is the creator of spirits we cannot see and from genesis to revelation you will encounter them and if we were to put on a biblical lens, biblical goggles, looking at our world, we would come to understand that the material world and the spiritual world are coexisting and often interacting. 
It's something that I, I think our modern age doesn't like to think too much about. But we come to a text where the spirit realm and the material realm are not just interacting, they're colliding as Jesus and his disciples encounter a demoniac, a demon-possessed man. We're going to take two weeks to look at this. And part of the reason we're going to take two weeks to look at this is because I do think that we are typical uh, of our kind of day and age is that we have a hard time getting our worldview to match up with the biblical worldview because we're so wrapped up in what's or we live in, I should say, a kind of a modern secularistic world uh, that bases what, how they would say, everything on science, what we can see, feel, touch, measure, what is empirical is what we believe. And yet the Bible gives us a different story that the reality isn't merely what we can see, feel, and touch and measure. The reality is that there's a reality we cannot see, feel, touch, or measure and that demons and angels all exist. So we're going to actually do this. We're going to spend this week doing an overview. And if you were to imagine this text as a portrait or a picture, we're going to stand way back, okay, way back, and just get very basic. So if you leave this morning frustrated that I didn't get too much into the text, um, let me just warn you, that's going to be the case. We're going to look at this text very generally. And then next week, we're going to get into a lot more detail. But I do think this morning will help us understand the next week's exposition of Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Let's read it, and then we'll use this text as a door to walk through to talk about the bigger issue of the unseen realm and particularly of demons. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs in the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you 
and how much he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Bizarre, right? Fascinating, right? What do we do with this, you might be asking? Well, I think we need to build some background. That's what we're going to do this morning. Jesus' encounter with a legion of demons uh, could be seen as a skirmish that is a small piece of a great, long war that has been happening in the spirit realm that breaks forth into the physical realm from time to time. And to understand what's actually happening here, we need to get the big picture, zoom out a little bit and get the biblical worldview of what in the world are demons, where do they come from, what's happening here, how are we to think of them. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through eight truths about demons. Is that what you thought you were getting into this morning? Eight truths about demons. Let's start with the first. And we're going to be all over the Bible And hopefully everything I say, I want you to measure up against the Word of God. Because if it's not from Scripture, then it doesn't matter. But if Scripture teaches this, then it does matter. And we're going to start with first truth about demons. Number one, demons and Satan are powerful. Powerful. The Bible teaches that Satan is not a symbol of evil, not a force, not a figure of speech, that Satan is a person. We first encounter him in Genesis chapter 3 as he takes the form of a serpent. He is introduced to us in the text of Scripture as one who wants to thwart the plan of God, that wants to destroy God's people in God's creation. You say, well, where did he come from? Because Genesis 3 doesn't give us that information. But if we were to look at other passages, I think we can start getting a picture of who this creature is. Because he is a creature He is not a god. Satan is a creature created by God. And in Ezekiel 28, there's a fascinating passage where the prophet is speaking about the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre is a king that is markedly proud. And as the prophet describes him, he goes into a section where he begins speaking past this king and speaking about a power beyond this king, a force beyond the king, that many scholars throughout the ages have come to see that this is referring to Satan. In chapter 28 of Ezekiel, and you look at verse 12, it's described, Satan is described like this. You were a signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. We know that couldn't be the king of Tyre. He wasn't in Eden. He wasn't in the Garden of God. The king of Tyre wouldn't have fit these descriptions. There has to be someone beyond that. And that's why many have come to see that this is, this is Satan. Verse 14 says, You were an, an anointed guardian cherub. A cherub is a type of angel with the task of guarding the throne room of God. We see him in Isaiah 6. I placed you... You were on the holy mountain of God. Verse 15, you were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. What is this portraying? It's describing a creature so beautiful, filled with so much wisdom and splendor. He's beautiful and glorious that many have come to see that this creature was the ruler of the heavenly hosts, possibly like something like the prime minister of the universe under God. 
God created his universe. He created a spirit realm. He created this creature to rule over the spirit realm, an anointed guardian cherub full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. And yet he became puffed up with pride and he was cast out of heaven. We know that from other texts. In other words, Satan is not someone you and I can deal with on our own. He is immensely powerful, power beyond human calculation, and demons are under his rule doing his bidding. And that's uh, one of the reasons why when you encounter demons in the New Testament, particularly in the text that we have before us in Mark 5, demons exhibit superhuman strength, right? They are breaking through chains. They're unable to be bound because of their strength. These are creatures stronger than us. Secondly, demons are numerous. So demons are powerful. There's also a whole bunch of them. Because the texts of Scripture point out that this Satan that rebelled against God, he was cast out of heaven to the ground, this dazzling creature that was made to stand in the presence of God, to run the universe in service to God, turned against God in pride. But Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, indicates that when he fell, he brought a third of the angels with him. They fell with him. And so we come to understand that what is a demon? Where do demons come from? Well, they are angels that were created by God, for God, and yet fell with Satan. Satan somehow persuaded them to come along with him. And so a third of the created angels followed Satan into rebellion. You say, how much is a third of the angels? How many would that be? How many demons actually are there? Well, how many angels are there? Now, Luke chapter 2. You remember the scene of the birth of Christ, right? The shepherds see the myriads of myriads of angels. The text actually says that there's a multitude of angels. Uh, sometimes um, the, the, the phrase Lord of hosts, host refers to armies. The idea is multitudes of angels exist in the heavenly realm. Revelation chapter 5 verse 11, John gets this vision of the heavenly realm and he says that he hears the voice of many angels. Listen to this numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Literally, the Greek is saying uh, the highest number in existence in the Greek language that they had. This would be like us saying, how many angels did you see? Zillions upon zillions. In other words, he is reaching to the edge of the human language to try to capture the number of angels he saw. What does that mean? If a third of them fell, that means there are Myriads of myriads of demons as well. They do not procreate, but they are numerous. They are abundant. And so they're more powerful than us, and they are many. There are a lot of them. They are numerous. Third truth about demons. They are influential in perhaps more ways than you might think. Satan falls, but he has not fallen to the degree that he has rendered impotent because the Bible still speaks of him as having a measure of authority. You could probably remember some of these verses. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is described as the God, lowercase g, of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5.19, get this one down. It says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he's called a god. He is called a prince. And John says that the entire world 
is in the power of the evil one. Jesus himself in John chapter 12, verse 31, called, G, called Satan the ruler of this world. So this is what Satan is at work in. This world, he is at work in the world system in general. He is at work in ideas. He is at work in philosophies. He is at work in ideologies. He is at work in worldviews. He is at work in politics and policies. He wants, Satan wants to do everything he can to destroy God's world, God's creation, God's truth, and they have a high level of influence in this world. They're not only at work in world systems, they're also at work in individuals. Ephesians chapter 2 also makes this clear. You, speaking of individuals, uh, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit, get this, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The spirit is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what the Bible says. It works in de demonic forces are working in people. And that's exactly what's happening in Mark chapter 5. They're influential. Look at number four. Let's look at number four. Fourth, demons are destructive. They're powerful, they're numerous, they're influential, and they are destructive. Jesus said in John 8 that Satan's a murderer from the beginning, that he wants to destroy. He is a destroyer, and Satan and his demons are hell-bent on destroying God's world. Let me tell you a few of the things they like to destroy. They like to destroy the body. Read through the Gospels and put on your, 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 uh, your, the lens of, th of seeing this. Sometimes we just read through the Gospels. We don't even pay attention to the spirits in the, re the, the unseen realm there. But actually, if you pay attention, you realize in the Gospel, it is demons that are behind mutinous, blindness, physical deformity, seizures. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, there's a young boy who convulses and foams at the mouth and throws himself into the fire. And why is he doing that? The text says that he's a demon-possessed boy. Uh, this is demonic influence. Satan is trying to destroy human bodies. Satan also is, able, is designed to destroy the mind. He wants to destroy your ability to think clearly. He is involved in bad ideas, false ideologies. He wants to tangle up uh, your mind so it's unable to grasp the truth. Ephesians 4 says that he can darken the mind. Thirdly, he wants to destroy, and maybe this summarizes the previous two, he wants to destroy God's image. He is a hater of God, Satan is, and therefore a hater of all humanity. He wants to destroy God's creation, God's image bearers as a way to get at God. Now, this gets odd. And again, I want to put out the warning. We can become too strangely obsessed with this stuff, but I want to limit our discussion to what the Bible says, right? That's what we want to do. And so we actually have to let the Bible speak on this. Here's our fifth point. Humans can interact with demons. I want us to look at what the Bible says about this. It is actually possible, and that works both ways, for humans to interact with demons and for demons to interact with humans. Let me show you some of the ways that happens in the Bible. Everyone's got their stories and anecdotes and things that have happened and weird stuff. We're not talking about that. Let's let the Bible speak to some of these things. First of all, the Bible says there's such a thing as divination. 
What's divination? Essentially, it's fortune-telling. Uh, it's, uh, it was a common practice in the pagan nations that Israel was sent in to conquer in the promised land. It was so common to the degree that when God was giving the law to Israel, when God was giving the law to Israel, he... possessed birds, I don't know, maybe. There's possessed pigs we saw in the text. When God was giving the law to Israel, he said that, it was guilt, that you would be guilty of a sin, a great sin, punishable by death if you were to be involved in any kind of divination. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, the apostles meet, get this, a slave girl. Let me just read the verse, Acts 16, 16. They were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. And this, this girl, the slave girl, actually goes around following the apostles, saying, these, are, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And eventually Paul gets so annoyed, he casts out the demon. And the demon goes away, and suddenly the people all lose their gain because the girl can't tell the, do, do the fortune-telling anymore. Divination's a real thing, but it's demonic. It's, it's a real thing. It's, it's demons that are at work in people. Here's a second thing the Bible actually discusses is magic. It's described in Scripture. Actually, there are magicians in Scripture that can do crazy things, and they do so because of the forces of evil that work with them. In, you guys remember the Exodus story? And Moses does these miracles, and they're matched by these magicians in Egypt that try to do uh, these, these uh, kind of, to imitate the miracles of Moses. They can't do everything that God does, but they can do some things that are kind of unexplainable, kind of magic kind of uh, works. They're described in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had magicians and sorcerers and enchanters. You could read it. And you'll actually see that the, the Babylonian culture was neck deep in this stuff. You actually hear it in, in Matthew chapter 7. When, when Jesus is describing judgment day and people who come to him at the end, Jesus says there will be coming to him people who did mighty works in his name. False teachers who are able to do these amazing works but will still be cast out and judged by Jesus because they didn't do it by the power of God. Well, what power did they do it from? That would be the power of Satan. Power of Satan. And then there's another way that demons and humans can interact, and that is what we see in our text here. It's possession. It's uh, something that you see in movies. It's something that kind of freaks us out. None of, uh, a lot of people just don't know what to do with this stuff. But here it is, straight from the Word of God. A, a human... This man who is described as a, the one from the Gerasenes, he's described as being possessed or demonized by not one demon, but by a legion of demons. They're, they're trying to destroy him. That's what demons do. You say, what is this, Halloween Sunday or something, Eric? What are we doing here? Um, we don't have a Halloween Sunday. I would say that this is just how it turned out. Um, but here's what we will say. If you're not a Christian and you happen to show up this, this morning, you might be thinking, this is the weirdest sermon I have ever heard. Do Christians really believe this stuff? 
And here's what I'll say to that is, yes, we do, as the Bible says so. And actually, I would go farther to say that it's not just Christians who have believed in the spiritual realm. Uh, Craig Keener, a scholar who actually studied demon possession in various cultures, came to the conclusion, I'll quote him, he said, spirit possession beliefs are geographically and culturally pervasive, which means in his study of demon possession, just about every culture in every place in every time period has had a belief about spirits. So if you come and you go, hey, I'm too modern for this, I'm too scientific for this, I would think that that puts you out of line with the majority of humanity that has ever lived because they have actually encountered this reality, the reality of demonic forces. In our day, uh, we use science to try to explain away some of these things, but it's the reality of the issue is that science can't explain away that which is spiritual. You could go down the cultures. I actually did some study on the various cultures that have beliefs in different demonic spirits. The ancient Egyptians believed that evil spirits could inhabit people and that the only way they could be expelled is by magical incantations. The Akkadian culture dealt with demon possession by creating a small figure of the demon and then throwing that figure into the fire. If a demon was troubling someone, you would create a little doll figure of it and then you toss that doll into the fire and supposedly that was supposed to release you from the influence of that demon. In the 5th century, the Greco-Roman culture believed that the fly, yes, the little fly, was the embodiment of a female demon called Nasu. I got too many Nasus flying around in my house these days. In pre-Christ Judaism, they had adopted methods for dealing with demons. In fact, one of the apocryphal texts called Tobit, Tobit is described as this character who drives off a demon named Asmodeus by burning the heart of and liver of a fish. Uh, some in ancient rabbinic literature, literature believe that Solomon not only wrote all these proverbs that we find in the Bible, but also wrote these certain magic spells. Obviously, I'm not saying this stuff is true. I'm simply pointing out the fact that cultures throughout the ages have believed in the spirit realm. And they've had to deal with the reality of spirits. It is only our modern age, it is only our modern secularistic worldview that has denied the existence of any kind of spirit reality. But we're Christians. We read the Bible. We believe what it says. And so we have to face reality for what it is. These things exist. Francis Schaeffer makes a fascinating point about this. He, he, he invites you to, to envision yourself in a scenario. Let me, uh, let's do this together. He says, imagine this. You're on an airplane. You're in the middle seat. And on your left is a pagan. Believes in demons and believes in spirits. Has no idea how a giant plane could get off the ground. Has no scientific understanding of how that might work. For all he knows, it could be some wind god blowing the air and causing that thing to fly. He looks out the window and he's terrified at the reality. He doesn't have any of the science, but that's his, that's his worldview. Is who knows what's happening, but he does believe in spirits. He does believe in demons. And then imagine on your right is an engineer. He has all the laws of physics mastered. He knows exactly why the plane gets off the ground. 
He built the plane. He knows every bolt and every nut and every little bit of information about that plane. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, Death in the City, asks this question after kind of painting this, this picture. He says, you're in the plane. You're sitting between these two characters. Which one of these men has a more accurate view of reality? Ask yourself that question. Which one of these men has a more accurate view of reality? The engineer who shuts off half of reality by denying the existence of a spirit realm and only relying on that which he can see, feel, and touch, or the pagan who has embraced a worldview, though wrong, at least sees reality as physical and spiritual. It's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? Because what we do, what we can do, if we're not careful, is we can act like the engineer, that the only reality that exists is that which we see, that which we feel, that we touch, that which we measure. And though the pagan is wrong, he is right about this one thing, that there is in existence spirits that God has made, that reality is in fact both physical and spiritual. We have to embrace this, and if we want to have a biblical worldview, a kind of understanding of reality that comes from the Bible, we have to actually wrestle with the existence of angels and demons, and we cannot permit ourselves to act like materialists. The world is more than what we can see. So let's move on to number six. Demons hate Christians. Demons hate Christians. So there's a whole bunch of them. They're more powerful than us. They're, they're working against us. They're trying to destroy us. And in particular, they hate you, Christian. And they are going to attack you, Christian. You say, well, how do they do that? Here's some ways they attack Christians, or you could write these down because it's helpful to know the schemes of your enemy. What do they do? They attack your assurance. They're going to attack your assurance of salvation. That's why I go back and read through Ephesians 6 and put on the armor of God. Why? So you can stand against the wiles of the evil one. What's the evil one trying to do? He's trying to convince you that Jesus would never love you, he'd never save you, that he's going to abandon you. He's always at work trying to undercut your assurance and your understanding of your confidence of your salvation. They're also going to do this. They're going to try to tempt you to sin. Satan tempted David in 1 Chronicles. He tempted Jesus in Mark. He tempted Peter in throughout the Gospels. He tempted Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. All throughout the Bible, Satan and his demons are working to tempt believers to sin. Thirdly, they will try to inflict pain. We see this in the book of Job when Satan goes against him and wreaks all kinds of havoc against Job. We see this in the case of Paul. Remember at the end of 2 Corinthians, he has a thorn in the flesh. Well, what is the thorn in the flesh? He describes it as a messenger of Satan to harass him. So they will attack your assurance. They'll tempt you to sin. They will try to inflict pain. Here's another thing they'll do. They'll try to deceive the church. 1 Timothy 4 speaks of false teachers falling away from the truth, and he describes uh, the false teachers as teaching doctrines of demons. There are demons behind doctrines, church. And so there are, uh, is another warning to measure everything up against the Word of God. They will try to divide the church. You remember that passage in Ephesians that talks about giving the devil an opportunity, a foothold, when you're angry at someone? 
Satan loves division in the church. If you're angry at someone, jealous about something, he wants to get a foothold on your life and foster that rebellion, foster that anger. They're working to divide the church. I think he's been particularly successful this year, it seems like. A lot of churches are dividing over things that are going on in our world. They also want to distract the church. Mark chapter 4, we already talked about it last few, few weeks. The word goes out and Satan swoops in and steals the word before anyone can apply it. Demons hate Christians. Satan is against Christians. He's against you. And here we encounter a man in Mark chapter 5. He is absolutely dominated by demonic evil. He lives in utter moral perversion. His appearance must have been absolutely hideous and grotesque. He has open wounds all over his body. He is a bloody mess. He's probably pulled out his hair. He's probably got scabs all over him. He's probably got a foul stench. He's not merely oppressed. He is a man possessed of thousands of evil, cruel, demonic creatures who hate God and hate Him and hate Jesus and want to destroy all that Jesus is doing in the world. Here's where we are. These things... If it happened any other sermon, we'd just go, yeah, that's just the wind, right? These things, they want to bring hell on earth, just like they're doing to this guy. They want to drag those on earth to hell. And here they are, Mark chapter 5, they cross the Sea of Galilee, and they encounter Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. They encounter Jesus Christ. I want you to know a couple things. First, is this man able to help himself? He cannot help himself. He is utterly lost, utterly hopeless, bound to destruction. There's a power greater than him that's dominating him. He can't deliver himself. Also, by the way, when we read through Mark 5, did you notice what the disciples were doing? They're not even there. They don't know what to do. They probably stayed in the boat. I wouldn't have gotten out of that boat. I'd say, take me back to the storm. It's a terrifying thing. This guy runs up to them, and this guy encounters the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the big idea of today's message, is that demons are real, demons are dangerous, demons are destructive, Demons are trying to destroy us. They are deceitful. And you and I can do nothing against them. We don't talk to them. We cannot control Him. Our only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He, not you, not me, has all authority over every demonic power in the whole entire universe. Turn to, Mark, or turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Talking about the immeasurable power that Jesus has after being raised from the dead toward believers. Verse 19, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. What And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, listen to this, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority. When you read rule and authority in Ephesians, it comes up time to time in Ephesians and in Colossians. That is referring to the spirit realm of angels and demons. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here's the big idea. Yeah, demons are real, are a bit scary, and they're at work trying to destroy God's work in the world, and Jesus is infinitely more powerful than they are. And he has all authority over all of them. All things are under the feet of Christ. All rule and all authority and all power and all dominion is Jesus's. And he can thwart and stop and put an end to every demonic activity that will ever encroach upon his people. Here's our seventh point. Jesus has authority over demons. Let me talk to us as a church this morning now. You're helpless, church. You're vulnerable. Think about this. In comparison to the world that we live in, we, we are desperately vulnerable. Last week we talked about storms, right? You live in a world with dangers beyond your ability to control. You live in a world that there are threats that you cannot eliminate. There are storms that you cannot calm. And you have a Savior who is sovereign over it all. And he says, trust me, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That's what he said at the end of the last section, right? And this morning, we are reminded of some more bad news, aren't we? That in addition to a creation that groans that we cannot control, uh, in addition to the forces of nature that are outside our control, in addition to that, it is actually worse than we thought. There are also invisible forces that hate us, that are against us. There's a swirling world of unseen, invisible evil that works tirelessly to seal our fates in hell, or if they can't do that, to destroy us and distract us. That is reality. And again, it shows us that we are weak and vulnerable and are unable to protect ourselves so what is our hope, church? Our hope is Jesus Christ. We are reminded again this morning that we live in a world with powers beyond our control, that we must repent of our own self-reliance and cast ourselves at the feet of the Savior and trust in Him to protect us, save us, deliver us from the forces that would be against us. Here's our last point. Eight, Jesus himself has promised to judge all demons. Satan and demons will be eradicated. Matthew 25, 41 indicates that Jesus prepared the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. They're going there. That's their eternal destiny, that they will be condemned to an eternity of suffering Revelation chapter 20, let me read you this. This is describing the final, final judgment. Revelation chapter 20, 
The sea gave up the dead, those who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Church, be reminded this morning that one day Jesus will eliminate every demon. He will eliminate all the forces of evil and Satan himself will be cast into an eternal lake of fire. And let me remind you, church, that is great reason to rejoice because one day there's a coming kingdom that will be totally free from every last ounce of evil. The evil in us will be purged completely and the evil outside of us will be eliminated completely. The kingdom will be immaculate and clean forever with no possibility of evil ever entering it. And if you're not a Christian this morning, let me tell you that the lake of fire, the Bible says that all those who have not received Christ, that is your final and eternal destiny. But there's a coming judgment. Mark 5 is a preview of the power that Jesus displays when he banishes and exterminates all the evil forces to the pit of hell forever. And it's also a reminder that Jesus and Jesus alone can save you. If you're afraid, if you're concerned, if you're wondering about the demonic threat in your own life, here's what you must do and do today. You must confess your sin to Jesus Christ. You must turn toward Him in repentance. You must embrace Him as Lord and trust in Him to forgive all your sin. Because He and He alone can deal with the evil in you and around you. He alone can protect you. He alone will forgive you. He alone can save you. So I would invite you to come to Him. And Christians, we must walk day by day trusting Him to be our sovereign protector and King because we cannot protect ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder this morning of this whole spirit realm that we often forget about. But I pray that it wouldn't cause us to have unnecessary fear. I pray that it would make us sober-minded. I pray that it would humble us. And I pray that it would allow us then to trust in Jesus even more deeply to value His loving protection and care of us and to walk day by day in pursuit of Him and trusting Him until that final day that you eliminate all the evil from this universe and restore the creation to its perfection that it was originally intended to be. Give us a strong confidence in you this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.